The first comes from Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. I don't have a page number for you, so you're going to have to just look it up. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. Hear God's word. From Mount Hor, they set out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Eden. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at that bronze serpent and live. Now, if you turn to the New Testament, where we're going to read from John chapter 3, we'll stop at verse 15. In God's providence, he changed what I was planning on saying. How about that? Somehow God does that to us, doesn't he? Now, now there was a man of the the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you did not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one who has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so that must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, and I pray, Lord, that you would bless the, this, the preaching of it, Lord, that your word would not return void as you have promised. We ask this in Jesus' name. We know that Nicodemus came to Christ at night. The scripture does not say why. Maybe he had a bunch to do during that day. Had to tuck his kids in. 
And that's all the time that he could arrange until he could make his visit. That's a possibility, but it's not likely, right? We all kind of have an idea why he came at night, one that is much more plausible. If you were hiding how you really felt about Jesus from the rest of your fellow religious leaders and did not want them to know what you were up to, you would use darkness to conceal your activity. Nicodemus freely acknowledges to Jesus that he believes he has come from God and that the signs that he performs are a witness to that. Nicodemus' direct acknowledgement is rewarded with an equally direct answer. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, it's no surprise that Nicodemus does not understand any more than we would understand if Jesus were talking directly to, get to us. His response was to speak about what he knows. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus, of course, is referring to a spiritual transformation that has a necessary physical counterpart, which Nicodemus is clueless about. So what is this connection between a physical birth and a spiritual rebirth? Well, the most obvious connection is that if you've never been born in the first place, then you can't be reborn. And the good news is that if you are able to hear what I am saying right now, that you have met that first requirement. But the spiritual parallels go much deeper than that. Every mother knows the difficulty of delivering a child. But we overlook the fact that being born is no picnic either. And it's the baby we are talking about in this case. What is the moment when you know that you've had a successful delivery? When you hear a baby cry, thank you for that. I appreciate the help. Until that happens, nothing is certain. You know, it's kind of ironic. That is probably the only time that a baby's cry brings us great joy. Just the term delivery is fraught with meaning. When a man says, I was delivered from drinking, he's saying he went through a terrible ordeal, but is now safe. You know, something that is overlooked in the hubbub of being born is that the actual birthing process is an integral part of the baby's development. According to an article that I looked up in the conversation, which is entitled, This is What Happens to a baby, Baby's Body During Birth, it states this. It says, Babies born by cesarean section without labor do not transition to the outside world as smoothly as those where labor has commenced. They have a higher rate of admission to neonatal units for respiratory problems, even after adjusting for other risk factors. Now, this article goes on to say that the trip to the birth canal um, describes a huge tr transformation in a baby's life. Just to make it through the pelvis, the baby's head, head bones overlap each other, and even their brain morphs. Probably the most obvious and necessary transition 
is how the baby gets its oxygen. Apparently, a baby is able to survive on relatively low levels of oxygen that is delivered through the placenta. This oxygen largely bypasses the lungs entirely. Now, when a baby is born, that baby takes its first breath. Its lungs fill with air for the very first time, and the act of breathing produces a much higher level of oxygen than they have experienced so far in life, which apparently can be very dangerous to them. So in the birth process, the liver produces an enzyme that is a protective mechanism for the infant, which mitigates this danger. This enzyme is responsible for the slight yellowing we all know as jaundice. Once the child is born, the umbilical cord is cut, and not only does the child not get oxygen from that cord any longer, but it will no longer be fed that way either. The baby is pre-programmed with a sucking instinct that allows the baby to to nurse and bond with its mother. No wonder the psalmist says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. In addition, the baby goes from unseeing darkness to blinding light from the safety and limitations of a temperature control completely confining space to exposure to a brave new world. What a trauma. It's a good thing that none of us ever remember that journey. Being born again is like that. We gain the breath of understanding for the first time. Our blind eyes see the light of the truth for the first time. The world we know goes from a hopeless, purposeless existence to a fulfilled, abundant life. Our world and worldview are completely transformed. We are born again. Some say accurately, you can be born once and die twice, or you can be born twice and die once. Meaning if you don't experience new birth in Christ, you will die a physical death and a spiritual death. But if you are born and born again, you will die once, but live forever with Christ. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The word marvel means to be filled with wonder and astonishment. Nicodemus was used to debates about Scripture, I'm sure. He knew all about that. But what Jesus had just said is new. And Nicodemus can only marvel. Jesus further elucidates on the mystery of being born again by saying, The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Presbyterians can be too cerebral at times. They tend to lean heavily on the Father and the Son, but leave the Holy Spirit to the Pentecostals. That is a grave mistake. Just like relying on your own understanding can be a problem. 
We need to be reminded of Proverbs 3, 5, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. But even further than that, which we know pretty good, it goes on to say in 6 through 8, In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. When did we stop realizing that life is full of marvel and mystery? When did we forget that God hides in his creation for us to discover and wonder anew at his goodness and his graciousness? Proverbs 25, 2 states, It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out and make no mistake. We are all kings and queens. We stopped being filled with marvel and mystery when we started leaning on our own understanding. It says, when we became wise in our own eyes. But the passage says, fear the Lord and turn from evil. What is the connection between the two parts of the proverb? When we think we can figure out God completely, when we believe we've cornered the market on truth and understanding, that's when we can do more evil than we know. Notice, too, that this repentance, this turning from evil, what it does for us, it heals our flesh and refreshes our bones. If we acknowledge that God is in charge and we let him run the universe and we simply trust him, talk about taking the stress out of our lives. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Being born again, being born of the Spirit is a mystery just as mysteriously wonderful as the transformation of our first birth. You can't pin it and label it like an eighth grade science specimen. God is bigger than our science, our imagination, or our understanding. Part of that wonder is that we spend eternity knowing God better and loving him more. Spurgeon states, Since we cannot control the Spirit, it should lead us to the very tender and jealous in our conduct toward the Holy, Spirit, Holy Ghost so that we do not grieve him and cause him to depart from us. But Nicodemus says, how can these things be? But Jesus continues to shake Nicodemus' world by saying, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell of you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus was a teacher in Israel. What does that mean? It means he was a scholar of scholars. He had probably memorized most of the Old Testament and was looked to as the authority when it came to spiritual knowledge. People would say, well, Nicodemus says. He is supposed to have all the answers. But before Jesus, he was like a little child again. So when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony, Jesus tells us a truism. We speak of what we know. And bear witness to what we've seen. All of us do that. 
We love to tell others about what happened, right? We love our stories. Sometimes, if we're an eyewitness to some sort of legal event, we have to give our testimony in court. But Christ's statement, but you do not receive our testimony, indicates that Jesus is not generalizing in this instance. When Jesus is saying he's talking about eyewitness testimony concerning himself, who is this we? It is Jesus himself. It is John the Baptist that is, uh, has appeared in the previous text. It's the signs that Christ has performed and the testimony of God's spirit. John the Baptist has already declared in John that he has said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's also declared Christ to be the preexistence one, saying, After me comes a man whose rank, who ranks before me because he was before me. And again he says, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John was the witness. Christ was the witness. The signs were a witness, and God's Spirit testifies to the truth to our hearts. So we are at a turning point. Do we believe the testimony of the witnesses? Or do we turn from him in disbelief? Or live in the quasi-world of James, where we are double-minded men, unstable in all our ways? The Old Testament and the court of law require two or more witnesses to confirm a matter. When two or more people lie about the same thing, we call that a conspiracy. Conspiracy in common law is an agreement between two or more persons to commit an unlawful act or to accomplish a lawful act or lawful end by unlawful means. You can be as polite and politically correct as you want to be. When you don't believe the testimony of a witness, then you are implicitly calling them a liar. And since both Jesus and John were saying the same things, if you do not believe them, you would have to believe that they were both conspiring against you. We are confronted by these claims as well. Are we receiving Christ's testimony, or are we just playing games to make ourselves feel good about being bad? The word receiving does not just mean hearing and understanding, but believing what Jesus is saying unto salvation, a life that is transformed by God's Spirit. Christ goes on to say, If I've told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the, the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus is marveling when Jesus tells him of earthly things. How can Nicodemus handle things about heaven? That he has never experienced in any way. Jesus makes another bold claim. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In all of history, there has only been one person who has testified credibly that he left heaven and has returned to heaven. There's only one who knows about heaven at all, who speaks with authority concerning heaven. Jesus just made the states even greater. He now states that he knows about heaven because he has been there and returned. Let us consider the reason to believe that his claim is valid. There is, of course, John's testimony that he is the Savior of the world and that he preexisted. 
His miracles prove his message, his fulfillment of prophecy, and his extraordinary life. His impeccable reasoning, the authority by which he spoke, and the gospel message that he proclaimed. There is only one person who has been able to speak definitively about heaven. We are looking at the strands of a tapestry woven together in complete unity, and they cry out with a thunderous voice, Christ is true. If that were not enough, Christ drives the matter home to Nicodemus to end to us, saying, As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Let us consider this ignominious passage in Numbers where Israel complained against God and Moses. Scripture states that they became impatient on the way. How many of our lives spiral out of control when we reach the point of impatience? Think of the evil that you have committed because you became impatient. Ephesians 6 states, Parents, do not provoke your children to wrath, but nurture them. How do we provoke our children to wrath? When we become impatient with them. We expect more perfection from them than we possess ourselves. We see something our children are doing and we dislike it, so we immediately become angry. Or we expect our child to do something perfectly, even though they have never done it before. But our impatience is not just limited to our children or even our spouses. We are impatient with God, just like Israel was. All our sin is ultimately directed at God. Queen, queen sings it loud, and, but it's what many of us think quietly in our hearts when they say, I ain't, it ain't much I'm asking. I heard him say, gotta go find me a future. Move out of my way. I want it all. I want it all. I want it all. And I want it now. God did not do what Israel wanted. A walk in the park. On paved roads. To the promised land. Isn't that what you promised God? Everything is supposed to be easy. I'm not supposed to encounter hardship or difficulty. No one should ever commit sin against me. There should not be any evil at all in the world. No, God, my life is experienced is just the opposite. You brought me out of slavery so you could slay me in this wilderness where there is no food, no water, and this worthless food that I detest. Do you see yourself? That you are Israel? If you were there... The result, I dare say, would have very likely been the same. Think about it. We're going through this pandemic, and we complain because our masks itch, and we have to wear them in the stores. And COVID-19 keeps us from doing what we want. We can't get out and have a good time, and no football in the fall? The world's going to end. And what is God's response? To send fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of Israel died. 
The other day I was working in the backyard and I got stung hard. You know what it felt like? It felt like a fiery high voltage shock. I've never been bitten by a venomous snake, thankfully. But these were fiery serpents. So deadly they killed everyone who was bitten. It's a sure good, sure good thing that God is not raffled like that today. Wrong. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the scripture states. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New. God's wrath was and is against sin in all its forms. But what did this wrath finally cause the people of Israel to do? To believe, to know in their heart of hearts that they were sinful. It was they who were to blame and not God. And not only that they were sinful, but they could not fix it themselves. They needed a savior. They went to Moses and and asked him to intercede for them, and he did. He prayed, and God told him to make a bronze a serpent, and Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at that bronze serpent and live. Israel's salvation came from a cursed snake on a pole. Do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see your Savior hanging on a tree? Do you know that you have been bitten by the fiery serpent, sin, that his venom is riding up your veins, that even now your heart and your life is in jeopardy, and Christ, the sinless man, became a snake upon a pole. He became our curse. He took our sin, our impatience, our thanklessness, our inclination toward evil. He bore it all. And what do we do with this death sentence? This certain knowledge that we will die a fiery death? We look. We look up. We look up to Jesus and live. Consider these words from Charles Spurgeon in his autobiography. I sometimes think I might, might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm. One Sunday morning, while I was going to a certain place of worship, when I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist church. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning. He, he was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope in that text for me. The preacher began thus, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, now looking. Don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. That was a lot of money back then. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. 
But then the text says, look unto me. Many of you are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You will never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I am a sweating and great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. When it came about to that length, the man is to spin out ten minutes or so. He was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as he knew, as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. (laughs) However, it was a good blow, struck right home. He continued, and you always will be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. Now this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, Young man, look unto Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw it once the day of salvation. I knew not what else to do. He said, I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with one thought. Like as when he had the brazen, brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. In that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them, oh, the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which took which looks alone to him. And now I can say, ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme, and shall be till I die. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that we have only one option in this world, only one possibility. We know that we have been bit by that fiery serpent, that we deserve death, that we get death, that death courses through our veins. But we know that if we look unto you, you can give us life, life abundantly. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to continue to look unto you for the life that only can be found in you. We ask this in Jesus' name.